Well, it might seem a little bit funny that I'm showing some cartoon clips to introduce my message, but it does have meaning to what I'm going to share with you this morning, and that is simply, what is in a name? Well, at least to the gentleman that was owned a very large company, it, names were very important. He came across one day a new employee that had been in the company not very long, and he asked this young man, said, uh, what is your name? And the new young employer said, my name is John. To which the manager of this new company, the boss, said, listen, I don't know where you used to work at before and how you did things where you came from, but around here, we don't call each other by first names. Using first names breeds familiarity, and that leads to a breakdown of authority. Around here, we call each other by our last names, Smith, Jones, Baker. You can refer to me by my last name, Robertson. He says, now, now that we've got that straightened out, what is your last name, son? And this new employee looked at him and said, well, my last name is Darling, John Darling. To which the boss said, it's nice to meet you, John. <clears throat> uh, if you're not already there, turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Matthew chapter 1. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 1. And I would like to read for you a section of Scripture, <clears throat> verses uh, 1 through 17 of Matthew chapter 1. Matthew 1.1 begins, says, A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amminadab. Amminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon was the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam the father of Abijah, Abijah the father of Asa, Asa the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat the father of Jehoram, Jehoram the father of Uzziah, Uzziah the father of Jotham, Jotham the father of Ahaz, Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Ammon, Ammon the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel was the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, Abiud the father of Eliakim, Eliakim the father of Azor, Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Achim, Achim the father of Eliad, Eliad the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Matham, Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Thus there were fourteen generations in all from Abraham to David, fourteen from David to the exile to Babylon, and fourteen from the exile to the Christ." Now, I, I can probably already hear the conversations this week. You mean Greg brought this guy from Florida all the way to read that long list of, you know, that kind of boring list of names? You know, that genealogy? Couldn't he have just gotten someone from here to come up and do that? I can probably hear the conversations already, but whether we realize it or not, Matthew 1 is a portion of Scripture that I believe that we tend to overlook. 
It's a passage of Scripture, if you will, that is not read in most services and most people choose not to memorize because of the names in there. It's just a long list of names, starting with Abraham, going on to David, and ending with Jesus. Some of the names we recognize, some of the names we don't. The structure is real simple. We just read it. So-and-so is the father of so-and-so, and so-and-so is the father of so-and-so, and right on. One name after another. A listing of generations of Hebrew people from the father Abraham all the way to the Messiah, Jesus Christ. As history, the list is fascinating, but for the most of us, that's about as far as it goes. Many people just skip right past Matthew chapter 1 to get to the good stuff, you know. But to the Jewish reader, well, at least to the first century Jew, they would have looked at that aspect with a little bit of hesitation. See, to them, genealogies would have been absolutely essential to know and to understand for several reasons. One of those reasons would simply be this. Genealogies were records of family histories and were often memorized by people because ancient people uh, didn't have any written records. I think a second reason why genealogies would have been considered important to the Jews that read this in the first century was simply this. It was genealogies that were used to decide inheritance rights. They they were the ones that were used to make the land allotments uh, or to organize censuses. And that's why we read in Luke chapter 2, verse 3, it says, And everyone went to his own town to register. See, Joseph, he traced his heritage from David. David and his family was from Bethlehem, the city of David. And so the only way to be sure that you're, you know, where you were from was to look back at your genealogy, trace your ancestral line. Another reason genealogies were important was simply if you wanted to be a priest, well, then genealogies were important. Because to be a priest, then you had to know that you had to be from the tribe of Levi, from the house of Aaron. We're told that in Nehemiah chapter 7, verse 64. And I think a fourth reason why genealogies were important was simply this. The royal succession and the credentials of the Messiah are linked to King David's lineage. Now, when we turn to Matthew chapter 1 and we begin reading his genealogy in the Gospels, we understand a little bit different and more about the genealogies and why they're important. One reason why Matthew's genealogy is so vital and important is because, first of all, it establishes Jesus, the Son of God, as part of the royal family of David. In other words, God had said a thousand years earlier that it was the Messiah who would come from the line of David. We're told that in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And what we tend to forget and what we need to remember is this, that at the time of Jesus, there were lots of people going around claiming that they were the Messiah. Imposters, you understand, claiming to be Israel's Messiah. And the way that people would know whom to believe, who is the right individual, was this idea of genealogies. Because if the person didn't come from the line of David, well then forget it. He's not the Messiah. He can't be the Messiah. That's why Matthew starts out in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, and says, A record of the genealogy of genealogy, uh, of, uh, of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. David is listed first, of course, even though chronologically Abraham came first in history. Why? Well, simply because the 
real, the crucial issue in this passage is not, is Jesus a Jew, a son of Abraham, but is Jesus, rather, is he a direct descendant of David? And in order for the person, for Jesus, to qualify as the Messiah, he had to be a literal, physical descendant of David. I think another reason why Matthew's genealogy is so very important is this. It demonstrated that Jesus had historical roots. Paul said in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, at just the right time, at just the right time, when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law. In other words, Matthew chapter 1 is telling us that Jesus had roots. He had a family tree, you understand. He didn't just drop out of heaven. He didn't just appear on the scene magically. But at the perfect moment in history, as Paul says in Galatians 4.4, he arrived. He came. He was born in Bethlehem. And this whole thing is painted for you and for me right at the beginning of Matthew's gospel account in Matthew chapter 1. And it's as if God is simply saying to you and to me, before I tell you anything else, before you go any further and learn anything more about my son, here's what I want you to know. I want you to read this stuff about these names and my family members. And so we open the pages of the Bible and we read it right there for ourselves. Three groups of 14 people, 14 names are listed there. And with their names comes their stories. Stories that are told earlier in the chapters of the Bible. Plainly told, nothing held back. And as we try to work around the difficult pronunciations of the names, what I want to draw your attention to is what kind of people make up Jesus' family tree. In other words, who are they, and why are they there? Like, for instance, why are there names of women found in Jesus' genealogy? I mean, you do understand that ancient Jewish you know, family trees never contained names of women in the genealogies, you understand. I mean, a woman was merely a, a possession of her father or her husband to dispense the way he felt you know, he needed to. In his regular morning prayers, among other things, Jewish men would thank God that God did not make him a woman. (laughs) And that's real simple because at least in Jesus' day, you know, women weren't viewed as persons, but more regarded as things. And yet we turn to Matthew chapter 1 and we start reading the text and we see that all the cultural rules are broken in Matthew chapter 1. Because we start reading about different women, and women belonged right there with the men. Equals in the sight of God. No less valuable, no less useful for heavenly work. And I think, I don't know if you caught it, but I think what is even more amazing when I read Matthew chapter 1 and the verses that follow is simply this. The details of the people that are in the genealogy. And the fact that they are women. I I, I mean... I could understand if the women that were mentioned in the genealogy were upstanding women of the community and the society, that God would mention them in there, but women like Tamar? I mean, Tamar is mentioned in verse 3 in Matthew chapter 1. Her story is told earlier in Genesis chapter 38, a very sordid story, mind you. In other words, through a series of tragic events, she ends up without any children. So she hatches a a plot that gets her into a situation where she ends up seducing her father-in-law to impregnate her to provide a son. Incest of her own choice. 
And yet there she is, right in Jesus' genealogy. That's one of the women that God used to pave the way for the eventual birth of his son, Jesus. Or what about looking down just a few verses further in verse 5? You read about a woman by the name of Rahab there. You know what she did for a living? I hope we don't have any young kids in here. She was a prostitute. She ran a brothel in Jericho. Her story is told to us in Joshua chapter 2. And her story basically goes that she helped out some spies who were coming from Israel to scope out the land in an eventual attack. She protects them from the king's posse and in the end ends up joining the family of Israel and going off with them. But there she is, Matthew chapter 1. An immoral and alien woman, and yet the Holy Spirit holds her up and makes sure that she is painted right in the beginning before we read anything more about Jesus, that she's right there in the beginning picture. Or or what about Ruth in verse 5? You realize Ruth came from the enemy nation of Israel. She was a Moabite. A Moabite? She eventually becomes the grandmother of King David. Jesus is regularly called the son of David. And so what Matthew is basically trying to say here is Ruth is really the great-grandmother of Jesus. An outsider, viewed with suspicion, considered worthless. Ah, but in God's eyes... She matters. You want a little bit more? Oh, just look down at verse 6. I think verse 6 is so interesting because there in verse 6 we read about a man by the name of Solomon. And I think it's so very interesting and no mistake by Matthew that that Matthew simply says, Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Here's a woman who was victimized by a peeping Tom who seduces her, gets her pregnant, marries her, has her husband killed, and and then marries her. You know her name. Her name is Bathsheba. Part of the family of Jesus Christ. Right there in the family tree. And you know, without her, we can kiss Christmas goodbye. You understand that. See, people that others wouldn't have cared a nickel for, People that that others looked at as despised people, victimized people, marginalized. And yet in Matthew chapter 1, I think God is telling all of us here this morning, no, these people matter to me. I like people like that because uh, they have value in my eyes. And we could carry on through the list if we bothered to go to the Old Testament, read their stories, oh, what we would see. I mean, there's Abraham, who turns out to be a real cheat on his wife and who lies like Pinocchio. We read about his grandson, Jacob, who was slicker than a Las Vegas card shark. Cheats his father-in-law, his uncle, and uh, his brother along the way. Of course, you understand that his name means cheater. And then there's Judah, the father of Tamar. And usually we tend to look at Tamar as, oh, oh. I mean, come on, you know, bringing up this issue of incense and shit was her idea. But see, what we need to understand is that Judah was no clean cat either. It was Judah's responsibility to find a husband for Tamar. And time and time and time again, it was Judah who set Tamar up with literally literally one night stands, no commitment, leaving the relationship, (laughs) And that's just in the first group. That's just in the first group of names. 
If you go on to the second group of 14, what we're going to read there is about a bunch of kings. Their stories are told to us in the books of Kings and Chronicles. And what a sad story it is. Are, are you ready? Murder, mayhem, unfaithfulness, occult, sacrificing children in, in uh, religious uh, practices, unfaithful religious practices. Right down the line, those are the people in the story. The family tree of Jesus is anything of a bunch of people that are not, they're not carrying harps and wearing halos. And then, then that's just the second group. You got one more group of people, the third group. You know what's so very interesting and telling about this third group? I, I, what I find so interesting is this. We know virtually nothing about them. They are nobodies. The Bible does not give us details about the third group of people, probably because they lived in the period between Malachi and Matthew, the silent years when God didn't speak. And yet there they are. They're, they're like the nameless faces we pass by at the mall every weekend or every day whenever we go. Absolutely no connection to them at all, but there they are. They're in the portrait. These nobodies are part of the group that God assembles to work through in order to bring about the redemption of mankind. Now, I don't think I need to explain to you, and I don't need to tell you that we live in a tough environment. I mean, we live in a very turbulent time. Um, if, if we make a mistake in our life, if we do something wrong or something happens to us, many times there are people who, well, they might laugh at us or, or, or they may not hang around us or they may avoid us because of something that we've done. And many times there are lots of people who feel avoided, who feel black, back, blacklisted, who feel condemned or maybe ignored. Or perhaps it's not what other people have done to you, it's what you've done to yourself. There are times when we really get down on ourselves for several reasons. One, because, well, we just feel like we don't make the grade. Or second of all, we may feel that, you know, we failed once too often. We just keep stumbling over that one thing that keeps bringing us down and over again. Or there are those that perhaps are even in this room that feel like they don't, they're not big enough, they don't know enough, they don't make enough, they don't have enough. See, that's why I want you to take a long look at Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. Because it's a portrait. It's a portrait that God holds up proudly at the beginning of the gospel and says, this is my family. And Jesus is basically saying, hey, uh, this is my family, and these are the people whom my heavenly Father has chosen to work through and in and with. Ordinary people, no-name people, clumsy people, sinful people, people that have stumbled, but people that God identifies with. And that's the way God works. And that's the way God still works today. He looks, he looks for the ordinary, not quite altogether, sometimes bumbling, downright sinful people, and he uses them to accomplish great things for his kingdom. I hope you can see where I'm going. See, while the names might be difficult to pronounce, the faces in Jesus' family portrait are very familiar to each and every one of us in this room because we can all identify with them. See, not only is it a familiar portrait, it also is a portrait that carries out a very deliberately put together, it's very put together with holy care, if you will, 
Because since God made his first promise to Abraham, God has been moving in and through history in an orderly, purposefully, masterful way to bring about the completion of Jesus Christ, his son. See, that's the reason why Matthew points out that the genealogy and puts it in three groups of 14 generations. Now, that may not wallop you between the, between the eyes, but for the original readers, it would have meant very significant details because to the Jews, numbers carried great importance. The number seven, or any multiple of it, was very, per, was very symbolic and symbolized perfection. And I think that's why we read different things in the Bible that deal with the number seven. Every seventh year, the land was to take a rest. The year of Jubilee. The completion of the exile of the Jews happened in 70 years. And then there are three such groups. Three, you realize, to a Jew represented this number of fullness. And I think what Matthew is trying to tell all of us in this passage is simply this. In full and in perfect ways, God took imperfect, sinful people during turbulent times of human history and he worked out his wonderful plan to bring about the completion and the bringing of his son, Jesus Christ. And here we are today in Clinton, Illinois. We are imperfect, incomplete people who also live in turbulent times. And we look around and we see our family and we look at our own life and our health and our future and honestly at many times it seems all just too uncertain. And that's precisely the time that we need to open up the Bible and read Matthew chapter 1 verses 1 through 17. Take a look at the people that make up the family tree of Jesus. And the more that you look at them, the more you realize, you know, I think my life looks a whole lot like theirs. Because I'm not perfect. My friends, don't ever forget what Matthew's genealogy is teaching us. Don't ever forget what it reminds us of. Four important facts. Matthew's genealogy, first of all, reminds us that God can use anyone. Anyone. I remember hearing a statement a few years ago that said families are a lot like fudge, mostly sweet with a few nuts. <laughs> In other words, my friends, Matthew makes no effort to spruce up the family tree. He's not hiding the twisted tw twigs or the bad spots in the family tree. He lays it out there. You do realize that most genealogists would skip over the bad people in the family, the scoundrels, if you were, the people that no one really wanted them to know about, only deal with the saints that come from our family tree. And if there was someone that had a bad reputation or did something wrong, most genealogists would try to cover it up, paint it, or just skip them all together. The historian would often clean up their lives. I recently read a story about a family, a very a wealthy family, who hired a, a, a biographer to you know, write down and research their family tree, but gave this biographer strict instructions how to handle the family very carefully, especially with an Uncle George they had in the family, who in a drunken stupor committed murder and was sent to the electric chair. The biographer said, I can handle that and, and I can take care of it. Here's what he wrote. 
Uncle George occupied a, a chair of applied electronics in an important government institution. He was attached to his position with the strongest of ties, and his death came to all of us as a real shock. You know, when I read Matthew chapter 1, you know what I read about? Uncle George's. A whole list of Uncle George's are in there. You just go back through it and read it, study it. And yet Matthew makes no attempt to cover up or hide any of the difficult spots that are there. I mean, the names in Jesus' lineage are shocking and can make the worst of us blush. And yet there they are. No attempt, to, no attempt at disguises. You know, I recently read an article, an ad in the newspaper in Bradenton, Florida, that read this. It said, we cater to clutter. Dependable house, apartment, or business cleaning. And as I read that article, I thought, well, there's nothing real earth-shaking about that, nothing really funny about that ad. But after I read it, it hit me right between the eyes because I thought, you know, that could and it should be the motto of our church. We cater to clutter. We cater to clutter. Because the fact of it is, I hope you realize, the reason why we do this here at church is not necessarily for those that are perfect. We don't cater to the perfect. We don't cater to those who have already made it. We don't cater to those that don't need help. We cater to those who need their lives to be perfected. That's the purpose of our being here. Because the fact of it is, is we've all got a little Uncle George in us, don't we? And when I read Matthew chapter 1, what I read is God taking those outcasts, those imperfect, those unfaithful people, and he transforms them and gives them new meaning and new purpose to their life. And I don't know about you, but when I read Matthew 1, I, I read a story. If, if God can take a liar like Abraham, a cheater like Jacob, a murderer adulteress like David, he, here's the good news. He can use you, and he can use me. And Matthew's genealogy reminds us, God can use anyone, anyone. No matter where you've been, no matter what you do, no matter what you've done, God can use anyone. I think second of all, an important fact that Matthew's genealogy, what it reminds us of is this, that God is full of grace. God is full of grace. See, I, I find it so interesting that at least if, if I were God and I was going to make, you know, bring my son to this earth, I probably would have weaved him through history to better family members, if you will. And, and as I read the genealogy, I thought, you know, God could have used people more like the, the Cleavers, but instead God chose to make his family more in line with the Simpsons. And yet, that's the truth of God, isn't it? God is a God who is full of grace. God loves to give grace to the Uncle Georges in life. You do understand that Jesus came to redeem those, not, not to redeem those that think they're righteous, but to save sinners. That's what he said in Luke chapter 19, verse 10. I came to seek and to save that which was lost. 
In other words, God doesn't demand perfection. He's not asking you or even expecting you to be perfect because he knows you're human. He knows you've got a little Uncle George in you. He's not asking for perfection, but what God does demand is repentance. It was Rick Warren who said it this way, the worse you are, the better candidate you are for the grace of God. God's glorious grace is extended to everyone, the faithful, the failures, and even the forgotten. And third, I think an important point that Matthew's gospel reminds us of is this. It reminds us that God keeps his promises. Even though we don't necessarily read about it right in this passage, the hero of this story is none other than God. Everything that's happened in the past, everything that's taking place right now, and what is yet to come in the future is all a part of God's glorious plan. And as we look back at the lineage of the Lord, what we see is Jesus, God, weaving his way through all sorts of sort of different people, faithful people, unfaithful people, in order to do what? In order to accomplish the bringing of salvation to the world through his son, Jesus. And it's as if God is saying, uh, I'm in the business of salvaging sinners and those who are in need of, you know, being recreated. And what we tend to forget and what we need to remember, and it was reminded to us just a few months ago by the name of a man, and I can't remember exactly where it was, California, Harold Camping, who said the world was going to end on the 21st. And a lot of people, you know, September 21st, a lot of people scoffed at him and laughed at him, oh, you can't do that. One thing that he did have right was simply this, Jesus Christ will return one day. Now, we don't know, and we're not trying to pinpoint when it will be, but what we do know from the Bible is that future is coming to a completion. Jesus Christ will come back one day. At some definite point in the future, God is going to send his son to the earth a second time, not as a baby, but as a king. And I think the question that Matthew's genealogy is asking all of us is simply this, will you be ready for it? Will you be ready? And last, I I think uh, an important point that Matthew's genealogy reminds us of is simply this. It reminds us that God wants you to be in his family tree. Larry Crabb, in a book called Connecting, said this. He said, a friend of mine was raised in an an angry family. Mealtimes were either silent or sarcastically noisy. Down the street was an old-fashioned house with a big porch where a happy family lived. My friend told me that when he was about 10 years old, he began excusing himself from the dinner table as soon as he could without being yelled at. And he walked down to an old-fashioned house down the street. If he arrived during dinner time, he would crawl underneath the porch and just sit there listening to the sounds of laughter and joyous noises coming from the family up above. When he told me the story, I asked him to imagine what it would have been like if the father of the house knew that he was huddled beneath them on the porch and that he would send his son out to invite him in to come into the feast and come into the home. I asked him to envision what it would have meant to him to accept the invitation to sit at the table, accidentally spill a glass of water, and to hear the father roar with delight, get him a new fresh cup of water and get him a clean shirt. I want this to be a joyous occasion. And Larry Crabb ended the story by simply saying this, my friends, 
we don't have to hide underneath the porch. Because the Father knows exactly where you are in your life. He knows what your struggles are. He knows what you're dealing with. He knows what you're going through. You don't need to hide underneath the porch. And some of you here today might have a stumbling block, an issue or two. Well, so do I. So do I. And there might be some people here who come here this morning and say, you know what, that's just not possible. Not, not, not for me. God, God couldn't do that for me. But it's true. You are invited to take your place. And, and that's the key. It's an invitation. You are invited to take your place. God will never force you. As a matter of fact, he loves you so much he won't force you. But he invites you. He invites you to take your place alongside the Uncle Georges of Tamar and David and Abraham and Ruth and Bathsheba and the countless other people who have come along the way, warts and all, and come into the home and accept the invitation and sit down at a wonderful meal that's prepared for you. See, the fact of it is is that we live every day trying to seek the approval of others, don't we? I mean, we try to impress them, we try to please them, we try to win their achievement, expectations for us, and to be real honest with you, it is really exhausting, and it's a never-ending struggle. But see, what I hear Matthew telling me real loudly and clearly is this. God doesn't necessarily offer us approval, but what he does offer us is this, forgiveness and a new life. The question is, will you accept it? Thank you so much, Mike, for that message here this morning. And I, I guess that question is for all of us. Uh, will we accept that? Aren't you glad we serve a God that accepts us no matter where we're at and even where we're going? Uh, he accepts us. And so if you've not accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior here this morning, this invitation is for you. And maybe you have accepted Jesus Christ and